Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Cleaning house, Nicaragua is seizing property belonging to dissidents and former political prisoners. We'll speak with a filmmaker who was forced to leave about how you can make peace with losing your country, citizenship, and the place you call home. Steering the conversation, Tesla is defending its autopilot feature in a new lawsuit over the death of a driver in a case that will test Elon Musk's claim that his tech is safer than humans. Gone in a flash mob, the manager of a pharmacy in Philadelphia says a wave of organized thefts isn't just hurting big chains, it's terrible for neighborhood shops like his. Hatchet job. A sycamore in northern England known as Robin Hood's tree appears to have been chopped down by a vandal after hundreds of years and thousands of photographs, many taken by our guest. Freedom of Expressions, the author of a new book on idioms from around the world, tells us what bookworms are called in other languages and what Norwegians really mean when they say you're like a Dane on skis. (gasps) And what's wrong with this picture? If you're still wondering what you should put in the backdrop of your video call so your colleagues will think you're competent, science has determined what should go on behind the scenes. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that subjects you to a thorough background check. A new phase has begun in the Nicaraguan government's crackdown on its critics. Months after revoking the nationality and citizenship of hundreds of political opponents, authorities have now begun showing up at their homes and claiming them as state property. Camila de Castro is a filmmaker from Nicaragua who's been living in Costa Rica for years. His home in the capital, Managua, is among those that's been confiscated. We reached Mr. de Castro in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Camilo, how did you find out what was happening, that police were at your doorstep in Managua? Yeah, so basically uh, there was a, a worker uh, in a property that's adjacent to my uh, home, uh, you know, saw the uh, police coming. And then uh, basically we had we had told them that, you know, if the police police come, uh, you know, we just kind of hand them over the keys. You know, there's nothing we can do. Uh, and, uh, you know, they came with, with sledgehammers kind of ready to, um, you know, break down the door and, and go in and, so we basically just said, you know, said, here it is, um, you know. Um, and so they went into the house, into my house, also my mother's home, which is next door. Uh, her her property also was confiscated. And, uh, she was also stripped of her citizenship. So you don't uh, know, you know what's and, happened uh, to your home at this point. All, all you know that it's been uh, that it's been so, confiscated. Yes, exactly. I mean, the, the, we were told. I mean, one of the, one of the homes. That was there. They they put a chain around the the door so you, mm-hmm. so nobody was is able to go in. And at this point, right, uh, the homes are, are there's uh, they they said they were going to put a police uh, post 
there, so no, nobody could approach the property, and uh, and, and we we don't know what they are planning to do with our with our home. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we just know that you know it's now registered in the name of the state uh, of Nicaragua, and uh, that, that that we have lost we have lost everything. Um, so, and as, as a appraisal for our my my work as a, as a human rights activist and my work with indigenous communities in Nicaragua. You mentioned your mother. What is it like for her to be living in exile at this stage of her life and to lose her home? Yeah, my my mother's you know um, she's a writer uh, and you know she's um, uh, seventy three years old and and it's it's very painful you know uh, to to have to leave your country and and you know uh, leave the house where you were planning to retire and spend your your your, your last few years of life you know uh, your last stage of, of your life so it's uh so it's very uh, you know it's very sad for us uh you know i obviously uh all that when they went in we we felt that mix of uh you know anger and and and, and just sadness uh frustration um but you know but we choose to keep going and, and we're not going to uh, stop the, doing the work that we're doing. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we think we have to speak out and um, and you know uh, against what what this regime is doing. But but it is it is a very difficult situation yeah. for to go through this. Um, you know, not knowing if we're going to be able to go back to Nicaragua, when we're going to be able to go back to Nicaragua. There's a there's a part of your heart and your mind that that holds out hope that you will be able to do all of those things. Um. Yes, of course. I mean, uh, I, you know, my my son was born uh, yeah. um, on February ninth, so a few days before this uh, judge took away my, my property and, 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 and nationality. And you know, I, I, I would obviously like my son to be able to know the country where where I grew up, um, and you know, uh, and to be also with with his family. You know, that's still in Nicaragua. So. Uh, we we don't lose hope that we will be able to go back, but we know it's hard. Um, you know, the regime is is very um, uh, they they have total control. You know, they're they're ruthless. They're willing to do anything to stay in power, and um, there just isn't enough international pressure uh, against the regime. They're, Nicaraguans are are you know living in fear, uh, and, and 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 so I think it's going to take a lot of work uh, yeah. to. To raise awareness about the gravity of the situation in the country, I think most people have no idea how terrible it is. What will you teach your son about Nicaragua? Um, you know, I think uh, for me, it's 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 my people. You know, it's, it's incredibly resilient people. Um, out, you know, just welcoming, warm. Uh, we're, we're welcoming and warm people. We we you know we we gone through so much um, and we still keep going, you know, and, and, and I think we have an amazing love for our country. Uh, you know, uh, we, we we are incredible workers, we, we are incredibly uh, warm and loving people, you know, fun. I just, you know, and, and I, I think I, I always feel, you know, that's what I miss the most about being in my country. It's just the, the, the warmth of the people and how open we are and, and you know, we can sit down and, and, and you know, uh, share our life story and, and with people we don't know and, and just just have an open heart, you know, and I think that that's 
that's what I um, what I what I hope to inherit to my son, and 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 that's the thing that I miss the most. I mean, I'm very happy to be now where I am in Costa Rica. I'm very thankful for the Costa Rican people who have opened the doors for a lot of us who have been um, sent, have had to leave. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's always a little bit different. Uh, we spoke in February uh, to the daughter of Francisco Aguirre Sacasa, who he was exiled. You know, he'd been a political prisoner. He was exiled to the U.S. She was finally getting to see her father. But the difficulty even in the happiness of that moment was that her father was going to be is was being called a traitor to his country yeah. having that label yeah. so your yeah. homes are taken away you're called a traitor can you make peace with that um uh you know i yeah one 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 has to keep going you know and i think what keeps me going is that i'm still doing work as a filmmaker and as a you know activist uh, to speak out for for Nicaraguans who are being uh, oppressed, you know, uh, oppressed and and, and 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 who are suffering because of the ruthlessness of the regime. Camilo, thank you. Um, thank you very much for this uh, for, for for this space and mm-hmm. for talking about the situation in Nicaragua. Uh, I think it's very important for the world to know what is happening in our country. Take care. Bye-bye. Camilo De Castro is a filmmaker from Nicaragua. We reached him in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Stores in Philadelphia are still cleaning up after organized flash mob-style robberies swept the city on Tuesday night. At least 18 liquor stores were broken into, as well as dozens of other shops, including Foot Locker, Lululemon, and Apple. The thieves also hit independently owned businesses like hair salons and cell phone stores. Police say the robberies were organized on social media and were not affiliated with an earlier peaceful protest after murder charges against a city police officer were dismissed. Benjamin Knockham is a pharmacist and store manager at Patriot Pharmacy. We reached him in Philadelphia. Benjamin, what shape is your pharmacy in today? It's in the shape of a box. It looks like a box with a plywood up front. We are not really operating. We're just kind of assessing all the damage that has been done. We're taking phone calls, but we're not really in operating condition. We have no storefront. We have no security gate. We have no storefront. It's currently, uh, I guess, closed up with plywood. Yeah. When did you get there? You know, what state was it in on Tuesday? Uh, it was it was it was actually much messier than this. Yeah. It was because they had come through and they completely flipped everything upside down. They they literally flipped up, flipped over a working station to get to the safe. So like they, you know, we're not a huge pharmacy. We have a small over the counter selection, yeah. you know, candies and junk like that. But there's only so much space, and they just destroyed the small space that there was. <laughs> what did they take? But they took a bunch of the over-the-counter stuff. They they went for my controlled substances, so alprazolam, prometh with codeine, pregabalin, things of that nature. They did not get into our safe, which is great. That was pretty nice. Yeah, how much like damage? 
Yeah, that's a little little win in the middle of this mess for you. I can understand that. You know, honestly, yeah. I don't, I, that's a big win to me. Yeah. Because, you know, like, narcotics are such a big driving force, especially in Philadelphia with the heroin problem, and that, like, the fact that they didn't get to that is, I feel like that's huge. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. How how much loss overall in terms of the damage and, and what you're going to have to fix and replace? What are you looking at? Oh, all right. So I think on average, our store itself, the physical damage, we're probably looking at close to seventy five to $100,000. As I go in, I get numbers. Where were you when all of this was unfolding? Oh, I was in my bed. I was like yeah. getting ready to go to sleep. Yeah. And then did you get a call or your security company called uh, you? We get a, I, get a, I get an alert to my phone through our security system. And I, I, I looked at the camera. I saw what happened. I called 911. So basically what happened was it looked about like about 10 people came up to the store in two minivans. They all hopped out. They were trying. They tried to rip up our gate and they just couldn't get through it. You know, they mm-hmm. tried to lift it up kind of like if you imagine a sardine can peeling back. And then someone came, they, we have a backup, a key backup for the gate. Someone came with bolt cutters, they cut that open, they smashed the key piece of it. And then I guess the electrical system for the gate gave a little bit. It pulled up the gate about a foot. They got some leverage and then they started to peel it back. And they got into the store through after breaking all my glass. And then they got to the next barrier, which was the security door and the security glass. Mm-hmm. They couldn't get past it. It was kind of amusing. You know, I'm looking at them and they're like fish in a fishbowl. And it's like, <laughs> did you think you were just going to walk in? Like, well, are you stupid? <laughs> I just, it was, it was really interesting to see. They clearly came prepared because they had an axe with them. Someone ran out, grabbed an axe, came in. They got a couple of really good hits in. They found a weak point and then they just yeah. got past the glass. They opened the door. They made a mess of everything. And then they took a hammer, the, acts to the safe. So they were determined, well, clearly, based on everything you've just uh, listed there uh, and and organized. And authorities say that this was a series of well-organized sort of flash mob style yeah. robberies. There were a lot of big name stores targeted. Yours is a bit of an anomaly because it's, it's not one of these big brand names. But what would you say to someone about what it, how it impacts a small store like yours? It makes it hard to provide service that all people deserve. Like you walk into a chain, it's a joke. The service you get is you're made to wait in lines. You're never de- you're never getting the truth. But you know, we try and go above and beyond for everyone. Yeah. Make sure that people feel comfortable and they understand that we are a part of the healthcare system. When we're in a situation like this, we have to treat people differently. We have to let them know, like you, you know, you can't even come into the store because there's glass that we're you know we might have missed. This isn't even the first time your store has been targeted. This is the third time since 2020. Was this time different? It was all the same. Opportunistic criminal enterprises who are probably just, you know, a lot of people in those situations are doing it for, they're not just doing it for fun. They're doing it because they need money to survive, to live, to to eat. And I understand that. And I, like I've said to other people, like, they saw op- an opportunity, they took it. And, you know, depending on each individual person's cir- circumstance, I don't think anyone can fault them for taking an opportunity to make money or whatever it may be. I think I'm in an underserved area where things are just taken away and there's just a punitive legal system, systemic problems, you know, that 
Some people are just very fortunate to not have to deal with. And some people are forced into situations where they may have to rob a store because they need to eat or they need to rob a store to maintain their status so they can continue living their life the way they have to. And I'm sure there are plenty of people that are like, oh, let's do it. It's just going to be fun. You, you've, your store has been hit three times. You have uh, you talked about the cost it, it, that it's that's taking on your business, but you have compassion, which I think some a lot of people listening might might see as as remarkable. But when will you get back to business as usual? When will you be back up and running? You know, people can walk into your store. We're going to see how each day goes, and once we have our safety glass, it's going to be business as usual, and that's going to take time because it's it's not just business as usual for. The customers is also business as usual for employees and employees who don't feel safe or, com- or or comfortable. You know, they're part of the calculus as well. Benjamin, thank you. No problem. Glad to talk to you about it. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Benjamin Knockham is a pharmacist and store manager at Patriot Pharmacy. We reached him in Philadelphia. I like books. In fact, I have shelves and shelves of them that I display on my Zoom calls. Almost half of them are real. I'm a big reader. You might call me a bookworm, unless you're Indonesian, in which case you would call me a book flea instead. How do I know that? From a book, naturally. Adam Sharp is the author of a new one out in the UK today. It's called The Wheel is Spinning But the Hamster is Dead, a journey around the world in idioms, proverbs, and general nonsense. We reached him in Leamington Spa, England. Adam, I think bookworm is, is pretty much the best name someone could call me. What about you? Do you describe yourself as a bookworm? I, I always used to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a French grandmother. Um, one of her favorite names for a bookworm was ink drinker, um, <laughs> how she always referred to my mum. So that was specifically from her her region in France, uh, mostly, even in that region, has faded out now. You, you wouldn't hear it much these days. Although there's still actually a bookshop in Paris called Ink Drinker. Okay, adding um, that to the list for the next time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so the standard, the, the word most people in France would know for a bookworm translates to library rat. That's the most oh. most common one. But uh, well, Ink Drinker, I think, is the one for me. I, I think so, too. I might swap out bookworm for ink drinker now and again but there there's a much longer list what are some of the other favorites you have some of my other favorites in, so in danish they have several words what one just translates simply to bookworm but they have another one that translates to reading horse in yoruba the word for a bookworm translates to book tree oh they also have a great phrase in yoruba about bookworms which means or translates to we asked God for a child but gave birth to a book instead. Oh, uh, wow. I think is a lovely expression. The Finnish word for a bookworm, depending how you like to translate it, would be book maggot or reading <laughs> caterpillar. Why, um, why has this evolved this way? Why is it like rats and bugs and tree yeah, is quite yeah. lovely? Like why? It's something it's sinister. Sort of idea of eating away at sort, <laughs> yeah. of, sort of devouring sort of books. Yeah, that even comes through or, or drinking in the case of ink drinker. <laughs> and what so about they don't it? sound complimentary necessarily. <laughs> no. 
But they should be. What about Turkish? Turkish, the most common one is just bookworm. Sorry if I'm butchering this. I believe it's kitap kudu, uh, which, is, which is just bookworm. But they have... Kurdu, um, yes. Of course, I knew this. Kitap yes, Kurdu. Yeah, yes, they, they oh, have a, several sort of regional and rare outdated yeah. ones. So Walking Library. Uh, there was another one that Yuri translated to... Mm-hmm. That, that sounds right. Yeah, that, that, that translated to ink liquor. So quite similar to the uh, ink drinker. What does it say to you, you know, the fact that every country and then different regions within countries have these different ways to describe bookworm. What does that say to you? It, it's it's a really lovely thing, actually. So so when, when I first started posting these lists on Twitter, it, a big part of it was just it was a fun thing to do and, and I'd become ob- obsessed with different languages. But also th- there was some intent behind it in that there was this rising tide of nationalism. Brexit had just, just happened here. And I was just really concerned about the uh, yeah, about this sort of nationalism and the xenophobia that comes with it and the distrust of of other cultures. There was part of me that really wanted to sort of try and in a very sort of subtle and sort of light light way respond to that by showing the sort of the vibrancy of other cultures mm-hmm. and, and sort of languages. The things that connect us Sorry. and words words and books do that, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. One of the nicest sort of things I did a, did a big list of the words in all different languages uh, for a finger majig or a watcher call it, and I and I, I'm yet to come across a language that doesn't have their own <laughs> version of it. And such great words as well, dingsbums in German, hobbledypup <laughs> in Dutch, uh, zamazingo. Am I saying that right in Turkish? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Zamazingo. Animal sounds around the world are, are often really fun as well, and and I suppose the other side of it as well that sort of that, that comes out. National rivalries come out. Oh, so nor in Norwegian they have an expression which is an equivalent to like a fish out of water, which translates to like a Dane on skis. <laughs> um, and then <laughs> in nice. Finland they have a euphemism uh, for vomiting that translates to speaking Norwegian. Actually, now now I think about it, if you don't mind, I'll, I can read you another list that expresses yes. that because it ends with uh, it ends with a Turkish phrase, which would be a perfect one for you. So <laughs> if someone sneaks out of a party quietly without saying goodbye, in England, we call that taking French leave. Okay, French exit France, or Irish exit. Yes, in France they call it leaving English style. Uh, in Norway they call it making a Swede of oneself. Uh, in Germany it's doing a Polish exit. Uh, as you said, in, in, in the US and Canada, giving an Irish goodbye or an Irish exit. Uh, and a great old uh, Turkish phrase that I find, which is number one in that list actually in the oh. book, uh, is to depart like a rich person. It says something. Just it says it, something about class structure in Turkey. It certainly does. Yes, exactly. Okay, before we say goodbye, you have a list of, you know, animal-themed farewells. Certainly we're, we're familiar with in a while, crocodile. But your list, take us through some of them. What might we say instead of in a while, crocodile? In Spanish, Milas Piro Vampiro is, um, I'm out here, vampire. Um, There's a Norwegian rhyming goodbye that translates to goodbye on the toilet, you old chocolate. Uh, 
Oh. And there's actually, you can actually <laughs> reply to that with another rhyme that translates to see you tonight, old caramel. Toodaloo, kangaroo. <laughs> Thank you, Adam Sharp. Thank you. Bye. Adam Sharp is the author of The Wheel is Spinning, But the Hamster is Dead, A Journey Around the World in Idioms, Proverbs, and General Nonsense. He's in Leamington Spa, England. Tesla CEO Elon Musk claims that his cars are safer in autopilot mode than when humans are driving. The family of Micah Lee begs to differ. In a trial that started today in California, Mr. Lee's family said he was killed when his Tesla crashed while in driver assistance mode. His wife and son were also severely injured in the 2019 crash. Tesla says there is, quote, zero evidence that the autopilot system had anything to do with this crash, unquote. Paris Marx is a tech writer and the author of Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. We reached him in Vancouver. Paris, what is Michael Lee's family alleging happened as he was driving along using this feature, this autopilot, on that day in 2019? Yeah, so they're doing uh, Tesla because, you know, they allege that the vehicle was traveling down a highway east of Los Angeles at about 65 miles an hour or 104 kilometers an hour. And then it was, you know, using the autopilot feature that Tesla sells um, with its vehicles, and that was engaged at the time. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, within the span of a few seconds, the vehicle veered off of the highway, struck a palm tree, the vehicle itself burst in the flames. Um, Michael Lee was killed as a result, um, while his wife and young son, who was eight years old at the time, um, were severely injured. They're alleging that this wasn't a case of, of someone ignoring the autopilot, uh, you know, and things going awry from there. They're saying that this is this is a case where the system did something completely unexpected and not what it was supposed to. Yeah, exactly. So, so they're placing the blame on the autopilot. They're saying that this system that is you know, sold with these Tesla vehicles, um, you know, it didn't work properly in this moment. And as a result, Michael Lee lost his life. Um, and then, of course, his wife and son were uh, severely injured as a result. Tesla, as you know, is arguing that autopilot is not meant to replace a driver and that drivers need to be prepared to take control of the car at, at all times. What's your sense of that argument and how it will play in court? Yeah, it's it's difficult, right? Because it really depends on how the jury feels about this and how it's argued, I think. Because if you think about the name autopilot, it suggests that this vehicle can drive itself, right? Whereas the company would say that it tells drivers, it tells customers that they do need to be engaged while um, autopilot is on. They do still need to have their hands on the wheel. They do still need to be looking at the road. Meanwhile, you have statements from uh, you know the chief executive, Elon Musk, um, who suggests otherwise and who has made statements that suggest that this system can do a lot more than like legally it is uh, the company would say that it can do and so there's some kind of you know uh, confusion there around how the vehicle or how the system can actually operate and I think that's kind of the gray area that this case is trying to address. How is this different though than a car being in cruise control and getting in an accident? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, people will be very familiar with uh, cruise control. It's been around for a very long time. And basically, cruise control 
just controls the speed, right? You can set a speed, you can adjust it while you're driving, so you don't need to be kind of using your pedals. But, you know, you are still in control of the wheel. You still have to be paying attention to where you're driving. Um, and the vehicle is not kind of intelligent or, or there are no claims that it is intelligent and kind of knows what it's doing. Whereas with an autopilot system, it is a step above that, right? You know, as the autopilot name suggests, you know, this can... It, it suggests that it can operate in a lot of different domains that, you know, it can really drive the car itself. Whereas Tesla says, you know, kind of legally that it is an assisted driving system. It can't do those things. The um, drivers need to be actually engaged, have their uh, hands on the wheel and all these sorts of things. But, you know, Elon Musk has been shown to not do those things in, in videos uh, using it and has made statements about not having to do that. And we know that some drivers kind of have heated what he has said about the the system and then not engage in that and not use the the system properly. If the Lee family wins this case, what does Tesla stand to lose? Yeah, it's quite significant, right? Because we have kind of had um, these cases building up for a while, Um, you know, based on reports by the traffic regulator in the United States, there have been more than 700 crashes um, by Tesla's using the autopilot feature since 2019 and at least 17 deaths. Um, as a result of those crashes. And so what is really happening here is that we have these systems that are being integrated more and more into the vehicles on the road. Tesla has been pushing it, you know, kind of earlier than other ones, but other automakers are looking at um, adding or have already added features, um, you know, similar to autopilot to their own vehicles. And so with this case, you know, where it is a jury trial, if the jury decides that Tesla is liable in this instance, that means that it's the automakers that are making these systems that will ultimately be liable if there are crashes. However, if they find that the driver is liable, it means that the automakers and the companies that are behind these self-driving or assisted driving systems are off the hook, or at least have a precedent to try to say that they're off the hook in future, um, and the blame for you know however these systems are used will be placed on the drivers themselves rather than the companies that made the decisions that went into how these systems were developed. Do you think companies are moving to use this technology too quickly? Yeah, I absolutely do. And I think that regulators need to be much more proactive um, in checking to make sure that the claims the companies are making actually line up with the data instead of you know, just allowing these systems to be rolled out on the public roads where it's not just the drivers who are driving Teslas with autopilot or other vehicles using assisted driving features that are put at risk as a result of that, but everyone else on the road that they're driving around. Um, And I think that that is a real risk. We see, you know, obviously Tesla is in the spotlight because it is a company that gets a lot of attention. Um, We saw in 2018 an Uber vehicle killed um, a pedestrian for the first time ever. Like, you know, it was the first time one of these self-driving vehicles had done that. Um, And what we also see is that companies like Waymo, which is Google's self-driving division, and Cruise, which is GM's self-driving division, have been rolling these out in cities in the United States, in particular in San Francisco. And they are not working particularly well there, um, but the companies are trying to spin it as though they are. And there's a huge backlash in those cities. Have you driven a car with with these technologies? Would you? Uh, no, I would prefer to to stay away from them. I'm the kind of person when I see a Tesla, I uh, get a bit nervous um, because I've definitely been driving in other vehicles before and seen people, you know, behind the wheel of a Tesla not having their hands on the wheel. 
um, as it drives past. And I don't think that that is safe. You know, the company would even say that people are supposed to have their hands on the wheel, um, but they have made it so it's possible for um, a lot of drivers to be able to get away with not doing that um, or to find ways around kind of placing weights on the wheel so it looks like the hands are there when they're not. Um, And so I think that there's a lot of unsafe usage and unsafe practices with this that is made possible because of decisions that were made by um, the people making the systems in the first place. Paris, thank you. Thanks so much. Great to speak with you. Paris Marks is a tech writer and the author of Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. He's in Vancouver. We requested a comment from Tesla on this story, but we did not receive a response. Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a heartbreaking day for people in Northumberland, England. The county awoke this morning to find their famous beloved sycamore tree had been felled, apparently deliberately, in an act of vandalism. The sycamore gap tree was a significant landmark for locals and visitors alike. It stood beside Hadrian's Wall and was thought to be hundreds of years old. If you didn't see it in person, you might have seen it in the movie Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Among those mourning the loss of the tree are local photographers, who snapped countless pictures of the sycamore over the years, Ian Sprout, a Sprout, is one of them. We reached him just outside Northumberland. Ian, why do you think someone would do this? Um, there's a mix of emotions, to be honest with you. I, I, I don't know if somebody's done it for a bet or if they've done it out of malice or if there's been a land dispute. Nobody seems to understand why anybody would do this. The, the feeling around the Northeast uh, regarding the tree is just nobody can understand it. What was the first thing you did when you found out? How did you find out? So um, I'm part of a photography community. Um, I'm just an amateur photographer. Um, And within one of the groups I'm in, uh, one of the guys sent a picture uh, to the group of the tree and it it looked like it was lying on its side. And we just just thought it was a fake fake image. And he was like, no, 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 this is true. You know, somebody's drove past on the way to work and they've seen it on its side. I was like, I'm going to have to go and check it out for myself. So basically I I said to the guy who I work with, um, I said, it just can't be true. We'll, we'll drive up. I says, I'll get my camera. I says, it's only half an hour. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out for myself. And yeah, sure enough, I, I stopped at the roadside, which is about half a mile away from the tree, got my big telephoto lens out, uh, zoomed in, and I seen the tree lying on its side. Just, just couldn't believe it. I've seen a few a few fake images of the tree um, lying on its side and stuff, and I just thought it was another one of them, to be honest. I didn't, I didn't think for a second that it would be down. It was... Horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Because we all we all thought it was to do with the wind. Because we got hit with a storm yeah. uh, yesterday, um, 50, 60 mile an hour winds, and I thought, oh god, the trees like cope with such things for like the last three hundred years, and a little storm like that blew it over. I just I was like dumbfounded. And then obviously when we got closer to the tree, we realised it had been chainsawed. Yeah, it's a clean cut. 
it looks like, not yeah. torn by a storm. Yeah. You mentioned the age, centuries. For centuries, that tree has been there. Yeah. There are a lot of other reasons that, that it's been so beloved for, for so long. What made it special to you? To me, it was it was an escape from the real world. Um, I, I, I struggle with stress. I've got a quite a stressful job. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, to get out of my camera into the dark skies and just forget about the real world, is just really important to me. Uh, my wife kind of pushes us to do that because it keeps us it keeps us in a good frame of mind, you know. Yeah. Um, and one of my friends, um, Andrew, took us to the dark sky spot when I first started photography, and he says, "Oh, we've got to go and see this tree. You know, it's it's amazing. You've got to see it for the first time." So I did my first astro shot at the tree, um, and basically, I, I, the I night sky and the tree, then. yeah, yeah, astro stuff. So it, it got us hooked on astrophotography from that moment, yeah. um, and particularly that spot. But I think I think the tree didn't really get famous until uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. The um, yeah, and that, that's kind of what put it on the map, and people were like, "Oh, wow, this really is a beautiful spot," you know. So I think the locals have, have really took it under, you know, they've really embraced it because obviously how beautiful the spot is. It is quite stunning. It's also been a gathering place, and it was again today with the shock of this news. Who else was there when you arrived? Some of the, I've, I've heard some beautiful stories today oh. of people growing up in the area. Um, I mean, people were just breaking down into tears. People were like, you know, there was, there was also there was loved ones like sitting sitting around hugging um, with obvious memories of like generations gone by. You know, some some people had actually um, scattered their family's ashes over the trees oh. and. It's just horrendous. You know, I, I read a few of the stones that are at the base of the tree, which I'd never actually realized before. Um, some really beautiful messages, you know, saying they're missing their loved ones. And it's somewhere that they used to sit, to congregate, to, to enjoy the space without the hustle and bustle of real life. It's breathtaking yeah. they're, they're, how sad they must be. You know, officials were certainly stunned by this as well. Everyone was. Have you heard anything at this point about what they're going to do? I mean... There's been, it's already been released in the news that they've got a suspect arrested. Um, there was a police guy who I was speaking to, the, the policeman who was looking after it. He, he he spent most of his life around that area going to the tree. So even the police, like you could see the look of disappointment on their face, you know. Yeah, a suspect in custody is one thing. People will want more answers yeah. after that. Of but the, the the painful reality is they can't bring the tree back. So exactly. is there yeah. something that officials have said that they're are they going to plant something new? Would that even be the right thing? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's obviously the first day everybody found out about it. Um, it would be lovely to think we could save some part of the tree, um, or maybe try to take a sapling off the tree to create a little bonsai tree or something. You know, mm-hmm. something to just keep the tree alive, just so people can visit you know, a part of what one once was. Once the shock of today has passed, how do you think people will remember this tree? Um, I, th- I think people will remember it for a, a historic, peaceful place, which was basically the heart of Northumberland, in my opinion. It, it, it was the heart of Northumberland. T- to me, whenever, I mean, we, we were speaking to a Canadian lady today at yeah. the base of the tree, and she was quite emotional. Um, she'd, she'd made the trip all the way from Canada. Um, and she said she was walking the whole wall. She had sore feet yesterday. She couldn't finish the wall. So she finished the second part of the wall today. And she missed the tree yesterday. Oh. So she was absolutely devastated. 
uh, it's very very sad very very because she wasn't expecting it either um from what i gather the walkers didn't know a thing about it they were walking over the hills yeah. and then they came across it when they got to the bottom they were like this can't be true this can't be real do you think people will still gather there i think footfall is probably going to be 10 15 times now i think they get the amount of the amount of people that are going to visit the area now i think will yeah like 10 times over i think i really do i think people will want to pay their respects um to people who have had loved ones scattered there um just just as a nod of respect for, for the for what one once was and on the northumberland yeah. uh, landscape you know ian i appreciate your time thank you no worries at all thanks very much take care take care bye ian sprout is an amateur photographer we reached him just outside northumberland england Jill Metallic Condo is an old hand at fishing, but a new hand at net weaving. As a member of the Listigush Mi'kmaq First Nation, both of those things are central to her culture. But making your own nets is no small feat, and the traditional knowledge required hasn't always been passed down. Fortunately, Ms. Metallic Condo was able to learn alongside her husband, and now they're sharing their expertise with other members of their community and with their own descendants. We were buying, getting our own fishing gear, um, fishing on our own, and just we found it hard to find some supplies, um, you know, fix our nets and stuff like that. And I mentioned to him one day, I want to learn how to sew nets, do our own so we don't have to rely on anybody else or wait. And we just kind of took off from there. Can you describe a little bit, just a little bit of a description of of exactly how does one sew a fishing net? <laughs> so we use uh, what's uh, there's a top line that's called a cork line, so it's a floating line, and we have our mesh, uh, which is approximately th- when we're done sewing, it's about 325 feet in length, wow. and the depth of the net is approximately 12 feet, anywhere from 10 to 12 feet, depending on the type of mesh we purchase, and uh, we put floats on the top line every 10 feet, and to help your net kind of sink to the bottom, we have a lead line. So we're tying the top uh, line to the mesh, and then we do the bottom line. And it takes about seven hours, I think, for myself to sew that. Wow. I'll take a whole day and just, I, I just go at it, just keep sewing and sewing. And my husband's there to kind of refill the needles and stuff, like the twine. It, the, the needle is a foot long, so we just kind of wrap the twine on that, and it just kind of helps you, uh, I guess, weave the twine through the mesh and the top line or the lead line. Wow. And so seven hours mm-hmm. to sort of from start to finish of one net. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you feel when you load up your boat with the fishing gear that you have made by hand? Oh, we're we're definitely proud and we're happy to be able to do that ourselves. When we're, we're out there in the water, we see all our nets. We know what we made. And it's nice to see all the uh, all the nets out on the water, all made by us. I mean, if they purchase from us or they come and they need repairs on their net, we're, I guess we've become the go-to people. Wow. in the community being able to um, exercise our rights out on the river fishing salmon that's extremely important and uh, it's very important for us to hand that down to our children and and our grandchildren i hope that someday i'll be able to show my grandson or maybe even my granddaughter too what it's like to be out on the river fishing salmon here 
Jill Metallic Kondo is a fisherwoman and net weaver from Listigush Mi'kmaq First Nation. She spoke with the CBC's Emily Warren. You may have heard our interview earlier this month about the flamboyance of flamingos that had shown up in Florida. An excited bird enthusiast there told us the bright pink birds had likely been blown there by Hurricane Idalia. Now, across the Atlantic, birders are having their own moment. The birds are less pink, but the birding website Rare Bird Alert has called it one of the most memorable couple of days in British and Irish birding history. Toby Phelps has been out bird watching. We reached him in Chester, England. Toby, if you could rate it, you know, on a, on a scale of one to 10, just how good has the, the birding, the bird watching been over the last week or so? 12. A 12. <laughs> it's, been <off> the scale. <laughs> it's been just amazing. So you were out for a walk. You were in Pembrokeshire in Wales last week at your parents' place. What bird did you see? Yes. Uh, so on Wednesday evening last week, I saw a magnolia warbler, which is a North American yeah. species of wood warbler. What does it look like? It's it's really beautiful. It's got a, a sort of yellow underside, a yellow belly, and it's got like a little grey blue head, sort of a green back, and these little sort of black um, wings. But he's got these lovely white wing bars as well. So it's um, a really nice looking bird, a lot brighter coloured than a lot of birds that we get in the UK. Did you just appear before you? Uh, pretty much, yeah. yeah. Um, so I was just walking into this little valley that was quite sheltered because it was still quite windy that evening. It sort of flicked up out of a bush and was just sort of fly-catching and feeding away, totally un- unfazed by my presence, yeah. <laughs> you you were phased. You were, were you freaking out? I was totally freaking out, <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't know what to do with myself. I was jumping for joy and also panicking that I wanted people to see it as well and enjoy it. And it was a whole range of emotions, but mostly, yeah, overwhelming excitement. And just how many times has the magnolia warbler been spotted in the uk before this to my knowledge that is the third record ever in the wow. uk and the first one for for wales um at that when you posted your photographs of your this this interaction online this beautiful bird how did people react given the sightings are so rare yeah there was a lot of um again excitement you could see it through social media and people were congratulating me and um wanting to go and see it basically so uh, there was quite a lot of activity the following morning when it was still there as well lots of people came down to see it yeah you're not talking about online activity people physically came to, to try to see it itself and it was yes. there yeah people in person to Pembrokeshire to see the bird and it wasn't scared off. yeah it wasn't it was there the next day and lots of people were able to enjoy it so oh. that was very good a bit of an exhibitionist perhaps uh but yeah. you you had another sighting of a different bird yeah so if the magnolia warbler wasn't enough, a few days later, I was walking on the coast quite close to where I found the magnolia warbler just a few days previous. And in this sort of small section of trees, uh, a Canada warbler appeared in front of me, which was, I mean, I didn't think the magnolia warbler could have been beaten, but it was. It was just <laughs> absolutely amazing. They're so exquisite little birds, yeah. The Canada warbler was the first record ever for the UK. So the first time this species has ever been seen here. Totally mind blown again, just by 
my luck in finding these birds over the last week well, or so. I was going to ask, is it luck? What's your secret? What do you think? Um, I think it's a combination of luck and being willing to, to keep going when it's been quiet in the morning and you're, you're out bird watching and you've not seen much. Having that motivation to carry on going because you never know what's what's around the corner, what's going to come out, pop out next. So a bit of both. And, and there have been others who've who've had some rare spot, sightings, spotting birds that aren't normally found in, in the UK. How, how many other types of birds have people seen? So this is a quite an unprecedented arrival into the UK of these sorts of North American species. It's been probably a total of maybe 12 different species over the last week or so, mm-hmm. totaling about maybe 30, 30 odd birds in total, individuals. All because of the storm. All because of, yeah, this ex-Hurricane Lee. You know, there's there's the excitement in your voice. And I, is it true that someone fell out of a tree trying to catch a glimpse of one of these birds? I've been told, yeah. <laughs> Some of the viewing conditions were a bit uh, poor, so it's difficult <laughs> to see amongst all the branches. I think someone climbed up and oh. fell out of the tree. <laughs> well, I hope they're okay. That's the, um, that's the they go to see yeah. these birds. I hope they're okay. I admire their... their uh, passion, determination. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, all that being said, are these birds going to be okay, given they're so far from where they're supposed to be? Are they going to survive? Um, I think they probably will survive. It's obviously pretty certain that they won't come back to where they're from, back to the mm-hmm. North America. Um, so they're essentially stuck on this side of the Atlantic. But they were migrating at that period, so they'll carry on migrating. Um, they'll mig- migrate south, so rather than migrating south through North America and into sort of South America, they'll migrate south from the UK into Europe and maybe as far as Africa. Do you think about the ones that didn't make it in the storm? Yeah, it, you, you've got to think think like that. These these birds are, obviously migration is a hard pursuit for a bird to do. It's obviously a life or death situation and if you meet adverse weather conditions like these birds would have then you you either go with the wind and if you can carry on you'll get whisked away and if you if you don't then you'll ultimately perish and if you're over the sea then yeah it's it's into the sea unfortunately i wonder toby because you're you're 25 years old are you a rare Mm -hmm. bird in birding because often people uh, associate this hobby, you know, people come to it later in life, some, but, or are you, are you finding that there's lots of people in your age group doing it? There's certainly more than when I first started out when I was a lot younger. Yeah. Um, but yes, as you say, it is mostly for older people, but, but I know quite a lot of, of young birders and um, yeah. um, it's part of a growing community. So it's really good to see. Is there, is there one bird you haven't seen yet that that's on your list that, that would actually beat the two you've seen already? Oof, that's a tough question. Um, I'll probably have to say the the Baltimore Oriole, which is um, oh. a really beautiful bird um, found across sort of North America, and it's really orange and got like a black head and stuff like that. They, a couple did turn up in Ireland during that sort of influx, but I, mm-hmm. I no, we didn't get any in the UK. So one of those would be amazing. Lovely speaking with you, Toby. Thank you. Nice to talk to you too. Take care. Bye. Toby Phelps is a birder who works as an ornithologist for an environmental consultancy company. We reached him in Chester, England.
Emily Paul is a third-year sociology student at the University of New Brunswick from Pabano First Nation. She plans to mark Truth and Reconciliation Day on Saturday, and she figured her university would too. But instead of a day off in lieu, either on the Friday or the Monday, Ms. Paul discovered she would still have to attend classes on both days. So she wrote a letter to UNB's president and got results. As an academic institution, I think if anybody has the responsibility to honor the holiday, it is UNB and it is education kind of institutions as a whole. And I just wanted to send the message that this wasn't something that had gone unnoticed that they weren't closing, that myself and many other people had noticed and were not necessarily happy and content that classes were remaining open. So we just wanted to speak out about it. Was it an exception to the rule in terms of like were other universities uh, closing? In- yeah, actually, yeah. I, I looked into it with my dad and we looked at all the academic calendars. And aside from Mount St. Vincent, every other university from here till Newfoundland was was closing down either on the Friday or the Monday. So Right, because it does fall on a Saturday. It does year. fall on a Saturday, yeah. So I right. think... That's also why it wasn't an automatic, we're going to close. But the precedent was definitely set. So you sent this letter along to the president. What response did you get? What happened next? I sent it about a week ago. I sent it in the morning and then I got a confirmation of receipt a few hours later. I never got a formal response aside from that. On Tuesday around 10 a.m., I remember I was sitting in class. We got an email saying that the campus would be shut down. As far as I'm concerned, nobody got a formal response. I guess maybe they thought that closing down the campus was the response. Do you think it's possible that UNB just made a mistake here and this was an oversight? I I don't know necessarily because it's a federal holiday. It's a statutory holiday in the province. So there was also that precedent that was set by many other institutions. It wasn't like it was no question that every other school was going to close down. Mm-hmm. So. You also, I've seen your letter that you wrote to the yeah. president and you make an interesting point about when Queen Elizabeth II passed away. Yes, yeah that there would be a day to honor her memory. Uh, and that was a, a no school day as well at UNB. Yeah, and I think that would also play into the fact that I wouldn't say it was a mistake because last Wednesday I was like, well, there's probably nothing that can be done. The, the calendar's set in stone. But then somebody had mentioned to me that we closed down with four days notice for when the Queen passed away. So that kind of gave me that extra push to speak out about it because... If you can shut down the campus for the passing of the Queen, there's no reason why you can't shut down the campus to honor the legacy of the thousands and thousands of children and families who are like suffered through the residential school system. So, what is it do you think, uh, Emily, about having a day from off work, off of classes that is so important? Do you think? I think it's important because the quote that I really like, which I put in the letter, is that education is what got us into this mess and it's what's going to get us out. So to give students and give people that day off kind of solidifies the importance of the holiday. It really solidifies that this happened, this is continuing to happen. Like while the residential school system is closed, the legacy is not over. So just to give people that day off to really reflect and think and use that day off to attend a ceremony or listen to Indigenous voices or just reflect on the legacy of the residential school system. I think that's very, very important for myself and also for the Indigenous community as well. That was Emily Paul, a third-year student at the University of New Brunswick, speaking to Jean Armstrong, host of CBC Fredericton's Information Morning. 
UNB told the CBC that the school has a number of public events planned as part of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. It said it is, quote, committed to walking the path of truth and reconciliation and to supporting greater understanding of Indigenous ways of thinking and knowing, unquote. Inbreeding is not something that you would typically applaud, but it really seems like we should put our hands together for the inbred reindeer on Svalbard, an island off the coast of Norway. You would expect inbreeding to create genetic weakness that could jeopardize the reindeer population, yet they have thrived. Despite living in isolation, the small herd has managed to survive there for nearly 10,000 years. Nicholas Dussex has been trying to figure out how. He's a researcher in small population survival. We reached him in Trondheim, Norway. Nicholas, if I could hang out with these reindeer in person, what would I see? Well, you would see a very tame animal, uh, tame compared to other reindeer or caribou that you find on, on the mainland. Also some uh, something shorter, a bit more stocky and a bit more furry. Um, yeah, that's what you would see. How did they how did they get to be there and become so isolated? So we're not exactly sure. Uh presumably they must have island hopped, uh, but they must have also been walking on ice, uh, because there are a few uh, anecdotal uh, records of, of of reindeer going to Svalbard that way. So we assume that they walked on ice at some point. So they're remarkable in a few ways already, just in the time we've been speaking, the way they look, they're different than other reindeer, how, how they got there, but also how they managed to survive for close to 10,000 years. How? <laughs> well, I mean, first you need food and resources, and I think that sure. they got that sorted. So um, on one hand, they adapted to a very different environment. But uh, from our own perspective in the study, we were really interested in the genetic component of it, uh, essentially asking the question, how can small populations, which can be very inbred, survive over the long term? And this is uh, essentially what we uh, set out to discover in this study. And we know, and we said it in the introduction to this piece, usually in breeding, you know, it, there's, there are concerns about it because it, it can cause problems and health conditions in these animals. So why did it help these reindeer? Well, as everyone knows, inbreeding is bad. I mean, you can think about royal yeah. families like the Habsburg <laughs> and, and it leads to those genetic diseases. But here we are really looking at inbreeding over a much larger time scale. So we're thinking uh, in terms of uh, thousands of years. Um, so given enough generation, enough time, a large number of those really harmful mutations will disappear and the population, even though it's very inbred, will be doing okay in terms of average health. Is that the genetic purging you write about? This is exactly purging, yes. I found it interesting also that they were, you know, you looked at their circadian rhythms, the food they're eating, they've been able to adapt what they're eating as well. What was really surprising in our study is that in spite of having lost a large amount of this genetic diversity and being very inbred, uh, they still managed to adapt uh, to those very different conditions. Um, and this is uh, the, the take-home message in this study, uh, which says that, you know, even small population, when they decline, maybe for them, there's still hope 
to adapt to changing conditions. Has there been other research on other animals? Are these reindeer the only one doing this? So uh, in terms of purging, there are more and more studies that have shown that this uh, can actually happen and that small populations are not always doomed to extinction. Uh, there's previous work we've done on kakapo, which is a critically endangered New Zealand parrot, um, also the alpine ibex uh, in, in the Alps and things like that. Um, but of course, there's a large number of studies that try and understand the genetic basis of that adaptation. There's one other issue that you talk about. They've survived a lot. You know, they're clearly resilient and they've adapted, as you've said. But climate change, how does that factor in to how well these reindeer will do in the future? The problem with evolution is that we, at least as biologists, we often think about evolution as a long-term process. So in this case, Falbert reindeer adapted or became quite different from caribou or um, other reindeer over maybe 7,000 years, which is, in terms of uh, evolution, fairly fast. But now we're talking about climate change, which is happening at the scale of not thousands of years, not centuries, but decades. And this is very concerning because the selective pressure, as we call it, or the environmental pressure, will be very strong and very fast. You've got some more research to do. What are you looking at next? So this study was only relying on what we call modern data, so uh, samples we obtained uh, over the past five or so years. But we also have a number of um, ancient bones dating as far back as 7,000 years ago. And here we are really interested in uh, examining the, the, the whole sequence of adaptation, so see how quickly Svalbard reindeer adapted to those new conditions. Um, and at the same time, we also will be able to understand how fast purging can happen. What made you want to, to research these reindeer in the first place? Well, I personally specialize in uh, the genetics of small populations, mm -hmm. trying to answer the question of uh, are all small populations or declining populations doomed to extinction? Um, so Svalbard reindeer is a really good uh, study system for this because it has been isolated for uh, for a long while. Nicholas, thank you. No, thank you very much for the invitation. That was Nicholas Dussex, a researcher in small population survival. We reached him in Trondheim, Norway. Here it as it happens, we like science a lot. We might love it, actually, but don't tell it. But we have to be honest, science is always late. I know there's a whole scientific method or whatever, but it really slows things down. Like Steven Spielberg made Jurassic Park, and then years later, science announced that T-Rex wouldn't have roared like this. <laughs> it would have roared like this. That is very ominous. It's not that ominous. And where were you when Spielberg needed you? Look, there are a million examples of science's bad habit of letting us do something for a long time and then telling us we're doing it wrong. Today that something is video calls. 
For a while there, a lot of us were spending a lot of time in online meetings and therefore a lot of time assessing the backdrop that we were sitting in front of. Did our troll collection look a little weird on camera? Should we have moved the bong? Well, a new study concludes that two things automatically confer a sense of competence on a video call, whether you deserve it or not. Those two things are bookcases and plants. Blurred backgrounds are okay, but not great, and a hilarious novelty backdrop in the case of this study, a walrus and an iceberg, was disastrous for anyone's sense that you are capable of doing even the simplest task. Neat study, but a little delayed. Some of us were in front of a walrus and an iceberg for more than a year, science. I know you're all about the big picture, but in this case, you're hopelessly late on the small picture. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.